Welcome to Thinking for Better Living, a podcast that explores the art of better living. I'm your host, David Coupland. On behalf of Electrolux, I'll be speaking to innovative chefs, thinkers, social entrepreneurs, and philanthropists to uncover the strategies they employ in their lives to make it the best it can be. Today's podcast, I spoke with Mary Huang, the founder and head therapist of the Indigo Project, as well as Anna Karim McNamara, a Swedish-born Sydney-based designer whose design principles are based on the thoughts of simplicity, sustainability, and functionality. Thank you for joining us. So I was really interested in researching both of your backgrounds and also thinking about actually how I'm going to bridge the subject of better living with two people who seem to work in different fields or at least apply um, better, better living and thinking for better living in different ways. And then I had a realization that the one time that I've applied design and my physical space and how it applied to my mental state was I used to love as a kid moving my bedroom around. Yes. There's so much and you'd move it around and it'd be all clean. And then you'd come back in and you'd be like, I'm a new me. I am new David. And then like weeks later, you'd move it back to how it was before. And you think this is the best, this is the best way. This is how it should be. And I just wondered why is that? I think we like things that are new. I think being creative is really important and realizing how when you shift what's in your environment can actually change the way you feel. You know, I think it's like it gives you a sense of autonomy, a mm. bit of control and mastery over your environment. And as a kid, it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, when you're making castles and, and creating worlds. I mean, this is, this is incredible that you can be able to kind of enact control over, you know, where you live and where yeah. you sleep and, and make it a little bit more magical than just your room. I actually did exactly the same. I used to change my room all the time. I think it might have to do a little bit of the world that we can control mm. when we're younger as well. This is my sphere. This is what I can um, move around, make it mine and try and f work out my identity maybe by moving things around and yeah. work out what works for me and what is it that this makes me feel and why is that? So I think it's very much about part of an, um, growing up maybe that we test things and see how that makes us feel. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I as an adult though, I find... I now, I now apply a consistent sense of order and I find myself being happy when everything is back in its space. I don't really like the term when people say, oh, that's where that item lives. I don't really like defining it that way. But like, if I clean my house for a door, I don't change my room around ever now, like ever as an adult. I just put it back in as it is. And I, I sometimes worry if I've lost that magic or that curiosity for the, or that relationship with the physical space that was slightly more liberal. Yeah, well, I think as kids, we're a little bit more in tune with our sense of play, you know, and yeah. um, unfortunately, as we get older, we can get a little bit more into routine, uh, rote learning, doing things right, getting things done. Mm. And sometimes that means that our values can change uh, towards, you know, kind of ticking the box yeah. and things being organized so that we can have a good week, et cetera, as opposed to like, let's go nuts. There's no right or wrong. And let's have a bit of fun. Maybe you just got lazy. You got lazy. I did get a bit lazy. I've got more things to do now. When I was a kid, I had less to do. I had less to worry about. Exactly. The biggest I was bigger my things to do. was moving my room around. And if I moved my house around as much as I did move my room around when I was a kid, it would drive my partner insane. 
just coming home and things are in different places. But it's interesting because I think you know, when we move things around, it makes us actually more mindful, you know, because we kind of go into environments and we just think, well, that's just the way it is. And we're not actually appreciating things for what they are. We're probably not even seeing them because we're just stuck in our heads. Yeah. So it, it probably would annoy her, but it would also make life a little bit more interesting. But I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think so. Um, no, I think that's right. And the thing I also think, do you guys have a favorite room? at your home or do you try and have a general atmosphere to your house in general because I have very different vibes in each of the rooms Mm. and I wondered if you had the same I think I kind of go for a sense of uh especially well the living room is probably my favorite room because that's where everyone gets together there's no tv there's you know kind of no distractions and the way that the couches are aligned uh so that everyone's kind of facing each other and it kind mm. of brings about this sense of just let's hang out and chat and, and yeah, I really enjoy that. I have, can I have two? Of course. I think, I think my bathroom, I love the mm. bathroom. I close the door, lock it. It's the only room in the house you can lock. So you're actually left on your own. True. Run a bath, light a candle bit of incense, turn off the light, put some music on, and then I lie there and I often just fall asleep, go away. That's in definitely the bath, in the bath. But just on the floor no, no, in the bathroom. Sometimes. That would be crazy. Well. You know, there's three teenagers. <laughs> no, I've got three um, grown children at home, so I need to escape from yeah. everyone. <laughs> um, so apart from the bathroom, but I think the bathroom is really pretty special uh, place and it's a sanctuary for many people. And Otherwise, I would say the kitchen. Mm. Yeah. And I've got a sofa in the kitchen. It's where I sit in the morning. Okay. Yeah. Drink coffee. Facing what? Facing, well, it's kind of, you can look out into the courtyard, into the greenery. Okay. Yeah. But then I always think when you interrogate, as you get older, you interrogate your parents' houses and what, how they constructed their physical environments. I think Mm. that's really, really interesting. And then when you host your parents in your physical environment, that's a totally different psychology as well. You almost have to introduce them to how you want to present yourself to the world. My parents never feel comfortable in my house, Mm. ever. You can just tell. They're kind of proud of it that I have. I mean, they're particularly proud when I have details, like if I have a bottle opener or (laughs) like a a cheese knife. They think, oh, I'd raise my son to think discerningly. But how different are your physical environments, your parents' physical environments? And Mm. did you take much from them? Um, I'd say my physical environment at home is very different from my parents' home. I mean, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in the south of Sweden and there was no kind of design input whatsoever, but my mother was an amazing homemaker, but it was very sort of twee and there was a lot of sort of, you know, embroidered curtains and tablecloths and decorative items and lots of things, very cosy, but not maybe very... Um, ordered. Yeah. It was more of a, but what it did have, which I think was very much part of what made me choose doing what I'm doing was that it had that sense of love in the home. Mm. It was a very comfortable place to come to and you were always welcome. My friends were always welcome. Everyone had a place at, at the table. So I think that's something that I've tried to emulate in my home. So not so much maybe how it looks, but how it feels. Everyone that yeah. comes through my door feels like, yep, I want to come sit here, 
sit on your couch, sit at your kitchen table. That's sort of how it's similar, I think. So you're not you're not precious about the the items themselves. Not at all. Them no, no, no. Good items last regardless if they're a bit banged or damaged. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. It adds to the character of it. You know, when we came to Australia, you know, we were quite poor as a family, you know, Vietnamese immigrants. And I think our houses, you know, well, the first house that we, I lived in was, was just, it was just a function, you know, parents were busy working and, and doing their thing. So it wasn't really a, a home, I would say. And it's really interesting, uh, Asian values as, you know, as you kind of grow up, you realize that. Uh, Asian people think that bigger is better and having a big right. house um, is really important and, and having like the biggest TV ever. So it's kind of funny because you have couches that have got plastic on them and remotes that have plastic on them. Yeah. So it's kind of uncool. <laughs> um, so I would say like my house is, is pretty different to that. And um, yeah, I, th- I think they've taken, my parents have actually taken something a little bit from me as they get older. I'm assuming we're a group of no devices at the table. Uh, I can't handle devices at the table. Yeah. Yeah. That's the intent most of the time and it works almost all the time, but sometimes they sneak in. Yeah. You know, with um, with three, so I have three, they're all in their 20s. Right. And, you know, they are very relying on them for a lot and they might be put aside and then, oh, I just want to show you this photo or something came up in the conversation and all the information is on it really hard to kind of keep it away but definitely that's the intent I also thought when you talked about when you get together for dinner there's like a skill in being a hostess and bringing people together totally and almost like I've started to think about this a lot if you just have a dinner to almost have a theme for the dinner so you kind of start out with a conversation around a topic you don't need to make it obvious but with and, and start to introduce a topic or a question that then will lead on to further conversation rather than just trying, because particularly when you have young people, younger people around the table, it's not enough to ask them how their day was. But if you ask them about what was the main thing you thought about today, what was on your mind today most of the time or something, or if you just post a different question, all of a sudden the conversation can take completely different um, turn. Yeah. It's it's awesome when you have a, dinner party or you're just having dinner with your family and you really commit to, to conversation and there's that awkward moment when you all know that emotional energy or that moment has come to an end it's almost a little bit embarrassing like you're like wow we really connected <laughs> now let's just go and do other awkward. things <laughs> awkward and then you have to just go and do other things and then you have to allow that it's not a wound at all but you allow that new relationship to kind of form again and you can then You've raised the consciousness of your relationship. Totally. But I was always really in tune with that. And it was all, I used to love when we were in the middle of a proper DMC, like deeper, meaningful conversation around the table. And then you'd start to see it tail off. And I was always disappointed when that moment turned. Yeah. And, you know, where somebody always, like if somebody needs a toilet or they just kind of break out of the bubble that yeah, you create. Magic. Yeah. Yeah. I that think, magic that you've got. Yeah. What you were talking about when, uh, you know, it kind of stops and then kind of people just go get a bit awkward. I think there's something called like a vulnerability hangover. Oh, really? Where you're just like, oh, did I say that? And, you know, you're just like, oh, what happened? And you're like, I think just, you know, people are very emotionally vulnerable in these deeper conversations. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I think, especially looking into the work that you're doing with Indigo Project, I mean, it was, there, there seems to be a much 
there's a, there's a higher consciousness now for vulnerability, but also the importance of being vulnerable and connecting with people and mental wellness. And I was talking to my father about it and, and he was saying, it's amazing how much your generation is talking about how they feel. And yet nobody seems to be any happier. You know, back in the day, we just used to accept that the majority of our lives would be difficult and we'd enjoy the free time that we had. And that perhaps a stiff upper lip has been replaced with a wobbly chin. And I, and I, I wondered whether, whether that was true or whether that was because for a long time people were either conditioned not to think about their feelings or actually, I, I, I thought it was an interesting point. I couldn't quite figure it yes. out. I mean, what's your experience with, with people's increasing concerns with how they feel? Yeah, well, I think people are, there is this movement towards fostering vulnerability and celebrating it more and seeing it as a strength. But in terms of it coming actually into the practice of people's daily lives. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a little bit harder to put into practice. So, you know, it's nice to think that people would support vulnerability in the workplace and in your friendship circles, but sometimes it's just not the case at all. So um, it's quite inconvenient for people to feel and to have those moments where, you know, if someone asks you how you are, that you can actually respond honestly, considering the pace of life and yeah. what we have got going on. So, you know, we're kind of talking about it, but there needs to be like the space that's actually created for it. And I think it's not potentially being facilitated uh, well enough to allow people to actually understand that it's not just talking about it, but it's actually learning how to feel it as well. So, yeah. you know, these days because of social media, we can kind of talk and type faster than we can actually think and feel. And we're getting a lot of stuff out, but I don't think we're actually processing, you know, deeper feelings. And I think we're still kind of holding all of that. So I, I do think that's why we're kind of still a little bit unhappy. Yeah. And, and how, do you, how do you see that with well, maybe, your children, especially yeah, in the 20s? Well, I think maybe it's more also that we allow ourselves to acknowledge that we want to feel happy or that we want to feel – if I look at my gen, my parents' generation – I think there was very much a notion of not allowing the sadness or the happiness. You had to be kind of a very even steady, at least with them, maybe they were probably not very expressive emotionally. But I think now we allow ourselves to dive deep into our emotions, but it also means that we probably can soar a bit higher as well. But whether there is space for it or not, I feel the conversation I have with my children, I never had with my parents. I know that. They can, I don't, they definitely don't tell me everything, but I think I have much more in-depth conversations around life with them than I had with my parents. Absolutely. What I think is interesting though, is that or what I, what I believe is I'm very open to talking about how I feel presently, especially if it's something's making me unhappy or I feel like I'm being treated in a way that's making me unhappy, but I certainly don't give as much attention to the things that make me happy. Um, you know, I, I kind of take things that make me happy for granted and I don't ever explore why they make me happy. I just explore why things make me sad because I think it's easier to discuss sadness in some regards than it is to discuss happiness because it can maybe seem smug if mm. you talk about that. And I wonder whether that's a conversation or an area of conversation that we need to be having more and be okay to say, actually, this, I'm happy for these reasons. Totally. Um, I think the reason why we tend to talk about the negative things first is well, we have a negativity bias. Yeah. So, you know, we're more likely to remember and, you know, feel those negative events purely because 
you know, as an evolutionary adaptation, we want to remember the things that we ate that were bad or the things that didn't feel good or that put us at risk of, of potentially dying. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's I think why we, we may talk about, for example, when we come back from holidays, how we lost our luggage and when things went wrong as opposed to maybe talk about the good things straight away. So, you know, talking about what's good actually needs to be practiced. It's actually something that requires uh, skill and kind of dedication to like a daily practice. That's why people do gratitude diaries and why people, you know, for example, what I do in the mornings is I, I think about the last 24 hours and the things that happened that were positive instead of just being like, well, I'm grateful for my house and I'm grateful for mm. my life. I, I actually try to recall, you know, the last day, which usually when you ask people, you know, how's your, how's your weekend? They don't remember anything. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it actually takes time to rewire the brain to, to look in our environment for things that, that are positive. Mm. I have a theory on that. Yeah. Hit me up. So I think to have an inner dialogue, which is all about the good stuff, to constantly, at least this is probably what I think I do a lot, even though I haven't really thought about it until now. So the inner dialogue is always about the good stuff and how can I improve this? And I, because this is my work and this is what I do constantly work, thinking of ways to create better environments. But then to share that with people is not, it's maybe not often very appreciated and that's probably a wrong thing but no one wants to hear the good news really they want to hear the bad news it's like the the it's much more engaging somehow to talk about the bad stuff because it, it creates a reaction if someone says oh my god this was amazing and it's almost like this that then you kind of met by almost some resentment towards it oh god you had a good time and i yeah. was at home and i did nothing so if you haven't i think if for me I constantly look for the good things to look for that I think about, but I don't think I share them with the world that much because I, maybe it's not what we're wired to do. I don't know what your take on that is, Mary, but. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I would agree with that, that sometimes people are a little bit uncomfortable with being happy and healthy. Yes. And sometimes uh, negative things do kind of bind us and we're just like, mm-hmm suffering and misery together <laughs> seems yeah. somewhat romantic but it, I mean it's really interesting because on social media everyone's putting their best lives forward so they're True. not afraid to do it there they're like you know I'm in Europe yay yeah but everyone's doing there's become this like dual life on social media where everyone knows they're putting out a fictive version of their lives and everyone's kind of bought into reality that it's, or the narrative that it generally makes people unhappy that there's kind of this, we all, we are all generally unhappy, but pretending that we're not seems to be the, the I don't have social media actually. So I'm, I'm, I now live in a world without it, which is a good place to be. Just to, to pick up on your point around, you mentioned about um, creating good environments. Is, is there, a, is there an objectively good environment that you can create for people or, or um, are there general? Well, I can talk from my experience and when it works, I think there are certain element that needs to be present. And I think um, some kind of order gives a, a pleasant feeling when you walk in. I think it has to speak, an environment needs to speak to all the senses. So right. if it's, and I think the first thing you notice is temperature. 
if it's really freezing cold or if it's too hot, you notice it before you notice the color on the wall or, you know, and then it smell, is it really stuffy in here? And, or is it, has it got a nice scent? So I think if you really, um, work and think about what it is that you're going to feel rather than what it's going to look. I think to me the look comes secondary and it's more about the feeling. Mm. And ultimately we all just want to feel, I think there's two things I think of in the environment. We want to feel connected. We want to feel connected to ourselves initially. And then we want to find a way of connect with other people and then to connect with the surroundings and the nature. So how does a space facilitate that. So that's kind of always how I approach a space. So not so much if it's going to blue or gray or black or stone or timber, that comes secondary, but how is, what are, what is the feelings that you want to have when you walk in here? Yeah. When you touch something, when you sit on it, when you use it, when you have to interact with it in some ways. Mary, you must be very cognizant of that with the space you've now got at the Indigo Project, right? Well, yeah, it took us maybe three years to find the right space. And we were very lucky to find a corner block, a building that allows almost natural light into every part of the space. And that was very deliberate from us um, because we know what it's like to go to a doctor's surgery and think you're going to get better in a place that is fluorescently lit and very small and white and has a lot of paper around and technology. Mm. So we designed our rooms to look like living rooms and, um, you know, when people come into the space, the sound is, you know, extremely important. We place a lot of attention to the senses as well. So I, I agree with, with AC on that. It's, it immediately hits us, um, emotionally impacts us when we have good lighting, good sound, um, you know, smell, everything. Yeah, the senses really help us to soothe um, our nerves people often come into the space and they're like, I, I feel calm straight away. And yeah. you want that in a space where people are kind of coming in a bit frazzled and a bit stressed out. Yeah. I'm now, um, <clears throat> I'm now a massive fan of scented candles. <laughs> I wasn't for so long. And my, my part, I've been my partner 12 years and she'd be like, right. Um, how much of this was going about like five years, six years. She'd be like, how much of our salaries this month are going on in the candle budget? <laughs> I was like, well, none. She was like, no, how much are we going to spend on candles this month? I was like, yeah, I, I, none, like nothing. And now our candle budget is massive. I love it. And and it makes such a difference. I mean, it, it really, really does. Yeah. Mm. I don't know why, because if I didn't, I just, my life would descend into kind of yeah. rabid chaos. Well, I think it's really important that we come back to rituals in our lives as well, because yeah. they kind of help you clock on to a sense of space and place which, you know, in a very fast-paced moving world where we're missing a lot of ritual that we used to have from religion and, and all sorts of other things and we just don't have them anymore and we need to create our own yeah. um, and lighting a candle is doing that. I was reading that as um, capitalism has replaced uh, theology as society's religion, the only ritual that people generally have is to spend money. And what that's doing is it's creating clutter for people and creating unhappiness for people because that ritual has no actual uh, spiritual payoff in any way. It's material payoff, which is good in the short term to some degree, but eventually becomes unhelpful. I mean, unhappy. I mean, I mean, your your design philosophy is based around simplicity. Yes, simplicity, sustainability. Yeah, and I think the whole uh, trend at the moment with this. Um, you know, the Marie Kondo 
clearing out and removing things from your home that doesn't spark joy. At the root of that really is the fact that we're just buying too many things unconsciously, that there is this need that we need to fill by purchasing. And then we end up with too many things in our homes and then we need to start to declutter. And the purpose of decluttering is just to get rid of the things that we bought because our minds was probably in the space where we weren't conscious of what we were buying. Because if we buy consciously, we hang on to it so much longer. And um, so now the whole, all the recycling shops are full of things that are discarded. And um, I think that we need to kind of address that. Of course, it's important to order things and have things in place, but I think we need to be much more conscious of what it is that we bring into our homes. Mad, isn't it, that people buy so many clothes that they have no sell-on value. People just buy clothes and then they put them in bags and give them away for free. It's got no resale value. So how much, how valuable can it have been in the first place? I mean, that blows my mind. And actually, on the issue of sustainability, when I was thinking about this as well, it, it strikes me that we live in this weird conflict where people want to waste less and there's this especially around plastic you know wasteless plastic but then people are told that they've got to constantly revise how they exhibit themselves but also live sustainably but there are items that do change your life but then not that many not that many do and i think that comes back to that thing where you you kind of constantly hope that every item you buy is gonna have that effect and very few do a bed can change your life right if you sleep well you get a good bed good sheets that actually can absolutely change your life i reckon yeah i agree although i am not i don't buy into fresh sheets are the best thing ever like people are like, oh it's fresh sheets oh yeah today. no it's the nothing's best. better than getting into fresh sheets i agree with that there's loads of stuff better than getting i like <laughs> two-day-old sheets when they're kind of a little bit worn in you know you kind of worn them in you get and you're like mm, I, i've this is two days good sleep <laughs> this is what i'm about you know, fresh sheets are too cold. They're always cold as well. Even if it's hot outside, fresh sheets, why are they always cold? Maybe it's a you know? two-day thing because my hair always looks good after two days of right? washing it too. Mm, that's Same it. Thing. Too squeaky clean mm-hmm. doesn't work. Sometimes though, if you're in the middle of a two-day hair and it's it's really working for you, sometimes though it stops working for you at like 2 p.m. and then you just look rank. Does that happen to you as well? It happens to me. Greasy. You just look greasy suddenly and you're like, what happened to my sexy two-day-old hair look earlier from this morning? Uh, so that's my big problem. I'll tell you another thing I learned as an adult because uh, we had to furnish our house from scratch. And um, did you know that your kettle has to match your toaster? Did you know this? <laughs> Why? Why? I don't know. I was in the kettle and toaster shop and I was like, right, let's just get these two random ones. And my girlfriend was like, no, David. You need the same. Best practice is that they're the same. Same brand, same, same colour, same, same, same finish. Same colour, same finish. Yes. Yeah. And if you yes. don't have that, people who know this judge you when they come around your house. Isn't that True. right, AC? True. That's me. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. I don't actually have a kettle. Right. I, I have a toaster. Have a toaster. <laughs> Wait. I do have a toaster. I don't have a kettle. Why don't you have a kettle? No, I just have something. I put it on the stove. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. 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 I know. Okay. Oh, wait, and you don't have either? No, no. I've got a, a kettle, but not a toaster. I just use the grill of the oven. Oh, good. Guys, that's a long time. Yeah. Heat up the oven. It must take a long time to heat up water on the stove. No, no, induction. Mm. Okay. I use the grill. It doesn't take that long. Okay. Well, I've got uh, a very if fast you do, If you top. do end up getting a toaster or a kettle, um, whichever one you're both lacking, you have to match it. Yeah, well, and the thing is, just move in together and, and, and be that odd couple. We'll just move into mine. <laughs> I've already got it. 
Um, <laughs> although we haven't got that many bedrooms, so you will have to sleep on the floor of the bathroom, unfortunately. <laughs> That's okay. But you're down with that. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good. Around. I've got candles in there. I'm happy. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you do match your kettle and your toast, just to, just to tie the knot on this point, uh, it feels actually feels wicked. Mm. I, especially when my parents came round back to they noticed back, it. Call back. They noticed it. Mm. Do you have your shit together? No. No. Why not? I, no, not why not. Yeah, I, I think that it's nice to get the perception that you're working towards things, but I think there's a little bit of a cycle around self development where, you know, we kind of get our shit together to kind of lose it, and then when we lose it, we kind of you know, progress and we learn something about ourselves. So, you know, I think people need to see it as a cycle as opposed to like, I'm going to reach this nirvana or something and then yeah. I, don't, I don't, I can just levitate for the rest of my life and, mm. and be godly. So I think it's nice to just be like, I'm kind of always Im- improving. Um, a bit of humbleness never hurt anybody. But uh, yeah, just a little bit of striving, I guess, to, to understand oneself better is that's where I'm at. AC? I think some areas I feel sometimes that I got my shit together and others hardly ever. But I think if there's one area that works okay at a time, then I'm, then I'm good out of three, sort of personal, business and, and family. Yeah. I think if all three are a bit wobbly, then it's, I'm not great. But if I can have two out of three, then I'm, then I'm okay. But I would never say that I have them. I don't certainly know. I don't have it. I think it depends on your definition of having your shit together as well, because if you think about the societal definition, it's like having everything and being perfect. Whereas that's why I would say no to that. Yeah. But if you have a, a kind of more succinct definition of having like three priorities that you're focusing on and you're doing pretty good at that, you're like, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing yeah. all right. Kind of proud of myself. When I was looking up to preparing for this interview, I was, I was thinking what that meant. And I think the way that I've applied and I don't think I've got my shit together. I think I've got it together in certain aspects. Mm. But it's, it's general taking accountability for your decisions. Yes. Your decisions don't have to be correct, I don't think. I mean, That's most right. people are doing the best to, to be nice, I hope. Yeah. Was. I think what you're talking about is having a degree of self-awareness. Yeah. You know, being mindful around, like, you know, the how, fall, how, how fallible you could be, actually, and just mm. acknowledging that, you know, you can be make mistakes and grow from them and, and it's okay. And that actually can be quite endearing to be around people who, you know, are, are just kind of themselves and aren't this kind of pristine version yeah. that makes you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I try not to set myself uh, unrealistic standards of behavior, especially if I've gone through periods of real discipline, like, and also I try not to reflect on behaviors that were consistent when I was a different age. Like I, I, I hate to think back to so like when I was 19, I was like this. When I was 19, I was also like loads of, I was really inconsistent loads of other ways. And actually holding yourself accountable to, or, or holding yourself to a standard that you used to behave, I think is really unhealthy. Yes. In general, because you're not the person you were then. You have to, then the people you're interacting with aren't the same either. So if, if they've changed, you must have changed. And therefore don't forget what, how you were, but just use it to inform the, the good decisions that you're making now or, or yeah, and I making. think you, you know, you genuinely make the best decisions that you can with the information that you that you do have. Mm. Your values are different, your priorities are different, and you know, at a younger age, you yeah, you're, you're just not as aware sometimes, and that's okay. Yeah, that's I good. just think I wish I had 
been more con- aware of how little people actually care in that sense or how mm. obsessed I remember being when I was younger, what I thought that people would actually think of me when you realise that everyone's completely self-absorbed. Yeah. So they don't actually care that much about me. If I feel good, then that's kind of all that matters. I wish I had known that more than maybe that's kind of then, you know. Well, it's that, old, it's, that old, it's that old saying, but people are too busy thinking about themselves to think about you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and the only reason you're worried is because you're thinking about yourself. But but that's that's a thing if you can get to a degree of self-awareness and understanding how your actions impact on others, you can become a nicer, better person or you can choose to be Machiavellian and awful. But but at least you can make those decisions sensibly. Um, I guess you're, you're giving yourself uh, the opportunity to have choice around that's right. your decision-making. So yeah. without self-awareness, we can be operating from instinct, subconscious, reactive. Yeah. And if we uh, develop a sense of you know, self-awareness, we can actually stop and think about, you know, is this, what are the consequences of, of these decisions that I'm making and, and why, what is the intention behind them? So do you, act, when we've, we've covered a lot of this, but how do you develop strategies for improvement in general? So in terms of better living, <clears throat> and we might cover some old ground, but. For self-improvement? Yeah, for better living. So do you, do you try to cut out things that are distracting from, from um, activities of value or are you open to? I would say um, very much around habits, like daily habits, weekly habits, monthly habits, yearly habits, particularly around the home because that's kind of my area. So I think better living to me is very much around developing routines that creates a home that is a place to come home to every day that you love. And that means that you might have to have the habit of making your bed, for example. So when you come home, the bed is made, cleans up, the sheets are two days old. Perfect. And, you know, the sink before you go to bed at night, the dishes, little things like that to me, that I know makes my life better. Cool. Yeah, better living for me, I think, uh, you know, in my life at the moment, really centres around learning how to say no and you know, delegating if I need to and, you know, being kind of sensitive person, I, I definitely do feel guilty doing that. I, I really like to make people happy. Mm. It's kind of my job too, to kind of help people, you know, be filled with it in my personal life. Um, yeah, I've had to learn a lot around just being mindful of my own uh, internal energy and the ability for me to actually give sustainably to others and to myself. And yeah, it's a really, it's a really tough lesson because I think it, you know, some days you're like, I've got stuff to give and, you know, here I am. And then other days uh, you don't. And sometimes you've made plans on the, those days and, and you're expected to give on those days. And so, you know, life does, is a little bit unforgiving around yeah. those elements of being able to truly acknowledge and honour how you feel in the moment. Yeah. Saying no is something you have to learn. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. I went through a phase of just like quadruple booking myself all the time. Yeah. And then I became a problem and I became... I became a flaky guy mm. and all I was trying to do was say yes to everyone, you know. I think the secret to saying no is to also allow and to learn how to feel guilty because that's what yeah. comes up and that sense of like, where does that sit in my body? What does that actually feel like? And, and feeling that because it's often that we try to avoid 
that feeling by saying yes. Mm. So when we know what we're avoiding and emotions we're avoiding, we can actually be a little bit more attuned to say, well, I'm going to sit in a little bit of that discomfort, but long term there is the benefit of actually um, having a bit more of a sustainable life. Yeah. Mm. I I encounter having to say no because we get asked to do work or projects and it's it's a feeling where you know you shouldn't say no in the times you've said yes and then that project starts and goes on and it's I need to trust that more to know that you say no which is sort of because it, what we do is so personal we go into people's homes and we kind of get into their really sort of deepest darkest secrets of their home so to be able to work with someone that you feel I can work with this person and sometimes you say yes because oh oh gosh we don't have enough work or we need to take something more you take it on and then it always backfires it's kind of a gut feeling Mm. and and you on the gut feeling I mean we're, we're kind of disconnected from from feeling that kind of internal compass that tells us sometimes what is right and, and what is wrong. So that kind of comes back around to the importance of developing some type of technique around self-awareness where we can have some uh, ability to know what is in our thoughts as well as what we're feeling. Yeah. Good answers. <laughs> uh, the final, <laughs> final question that I've got, because uh, we answered a lot of my, which is good, uh, it, and it might cover up on what you just mentioned, mm-hmm. AC, but it's, what one piece of thinking would you give to our listeners to help them live better? I would say, remember, we all just want to be loved. I would say, uh, be human, allow yourself to be a little bit messy and know that it's okay not to be okay sometimes. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anna Corinne and Mary. And if you'd like to find out any more about the Indigo Project or about Anna Corinne's design studios and philosophies, please visit our website, electrolux.com.au.